Well, good morning, church. I, I, knew, I knew that that was coming. Uh, I was prepared this time, so thank, thank you for the, the warm greeting, as, as Paul would say to, you know, warm greetings to you as well. Um, good morning. I, I'm thankful to be with you this morning. Uh, as, as you've heard, I'm not Jeff. I'm sorry. Uh, can't help that. Uh, hopefully, I'm a little bit taller than him, so you can see me over the podium at least. Um, no, we're, we're praying for them. They're going to be heading back this uh, tomorrow, I believe. Uh, so be praying for our team that left to go to Greece, uh, that they would have a good trip back as they return. And, and we're looking forward to the coming weeks as, as Jeff will be back next week uh, to continue our series. Our series that we're in is Since Heaven is Real. And we're looking at how, with that promise in mind, how, if, how that changes the way that we live now. If heaven is real, how does that change as believers who we are and, and how we live our lives? And uh, this morning we're going to look at how because heaven is real, there is joy in our grief. There's joy in our grief. And uh, before Jeff left, uh, me and Alan, we drew straws to see who would get the messages. And last week, you know, Alan got the easy one. And I get this morning uh, to talk to you about grief. And, and I just want to start off by saying there, uh, that as a 29-year-old that hasn't experienced much in life, as I've prepared this week, I've, I've felt at times unqualified and inadequate to talk to you about grief. And here's why, because uh, I just haven't been through the life experiences that I know that some of you have been through. I know that some of you in here have, have had to bury your parents. Maybe they have, maybe you have lost a spouse or even a child. And, and I will tell you this morning that I, I haven't had to go through those things yet in my life, and it would be wrong of me to stand up here and act like I can tell you how to feel about those things. So I don't, I don't stand here today that I'm, I'm not going to give you five principles how to uh, overcome your grief through my experience, because I, I can't speak to that. And I'm not going to get up here today and act like I know what it's like. I, I just have two goals this morning. The first one is that uh, we're going to get into God's word and we're going to see the promise here that we can have joy in God's word. And the second one comes from my wife, uh, who is not here this morning. She's, she's away at a funeral this morning. Uh, so, but she told me that not to get fired. So there's my two goals this morning that we'll get into God's word and we'll see how there's joy and grief. And of course, that I won't say anything to get me fired. So uh, but let's, let's go ahead and jump into God's word together. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So as you're finding that, as you're finding 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to give you some background information to bring you into the letter that we are in, that Paul has written. So those of you that have gone through grief, you probably know this, that as, as you're going through grief, and as you're going through the process, maybe you've lost someone and you've uh, been at the funeral as, as a family member, and everybody has advice. 
Everybody wants to come up and tell you something that's, that's gonna try to make you feel better. And they mean well, they, they love you and, and they want to help you along with the process. But then you look at, some people will come up and say things to you and, and then they walk away and then you look to your left to the person standing there and you go, who was that person? I have no idea who that was. And it's interesting how when, when we have funerals and these things that there will be people that enter our lives that know nothing about us, strangers that wanna tell us how to handle our grief. And I want you to see here that Paul is not a stranger to the Thessalonians. So when he's going to speak to this issue, he's not speaking as one that's just like, oh, hey, I heard about something and we're here, so I have some advice for you. No, he knows them personally, and now he's investing in this point in their life. See, in Acts chapter 17, uh, we learn about that story about how Paul, train, sorry, I do that with the students all the time, whenever there's a train. Gotta say it. Okay. Acts chapter 17, Paul, Silas, and Timothy come to Thessalonica after just being released from prison in Philippi. As you'll remember, there was a, an earthquake that took place while they were in prison and everything blew up and the, the, the jailer was sitting there thinking that all the prisoners were going to escape. So his only thought was, they're going to murder me and my family. The, the, at least I can do the honorable thing of dying on my own sword. And then they stop him and go, no, we're all here. Wait, don't hurt yourself. And in that moment of grace, the jailer asks, what can I do to be saved? In which they respond, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And him and his whole family end up getting saved because of this moment. That was in Philippi. Now they're leaving Philippi and they head in, in Acts chapter 17 to Thessalonica. They wander into town there's a synagogue in this town, so Paul is like, hey, let's set up shop. So for the next three weeks, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians there where he urges them, he proclaims the gospel, and many of them come to faith in Christ. But as, as the story often goes, because of this movement of God, because God was working in their lives, the Jewish people there in Thessalonica got upset because of the the people coming to faith in Jesus, and they decided to start a riot and blame it on Paul. It got so bad that they, they went to the authorities, the city authorities of the place, and then they brought in uh, Jason, who was basically Paul, Silas, and Timothy's Airbnb host. That's pretty much who he was. And they were like, what is going on here? What's, going, what's, what's the problem? Why are there riots happening? And Jason's response was, well, the problem is, is that there's another king that's not Caesar, and his name's Jesus. And because of this, and because the city authorities knew that the problems were going to happen, they were like, okay, well, give us some money. They tried to bribe them, and we'll let them go, but they need to leave. So even in the midst of that evening, the new believers helped Paul, Timothy, and Silas escape into the dark to Berea. Now, as you can imagine, Paul felt upset about this because he felt like he left the Thessalonians by themselves. I mean, he had only spent three weeks with them. He hadn't, he hadn't gotten a chance to really dig into theology. If you can imagine just being at a church for, a pastor being at a church for, for three weeks and then having to leave. He felt like, oh, I, des I deserted them. I need to check on them. So then a few months later, he sends Timothy to go check on the church there and they discover that the church is growing. 
See, it's grown to the point that not only is it affecting the community and changing the makeup of the community of of Thessalonica, but they're now sending missionaries to their surrounding cities to proclaim the gospel. Things are going well. However, they're being persecuted like nobody's business to the point where some believers are giving up their lives for Christ. They're being martyred for the name of Jesus. So when Paul writes this letter, what he's trying to do is commend them, encourage them, say, you're doing a great job. You're, of all, we, we didn't know what to think would happen. And here you are flourishing in the midst of all the challenges. He also told them about some of the things that they can work on, some of the things he probably didn't get a chance to to preach about while he was there. And then he answers some of their questions. And that's where we find ourselves today in one of those answers to their questions. Because so many people were being martyred for their faith, the Thessalonians had this question. Will our deceased loved ones, the ones that have given their lives for Christ, will they miss out on the resurrection. You've told us about Jesus returning. You've you've told us about this glorious thing that's going to happen when when Christ calls his people back home. But will our loved ones miss out on this? So hopefully today, as as you'll see here, Paul's answer is not only going to give them hope, but it, it should also give us hope as well. So let's let's dig in. First Thessalonians chapter four starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Like I said, he's answering their question. Brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, when we read this, we may be confused because we're like, okay, well, we were talking about those that have passed away, right? Then why does it say that uh, he's answering the question about those that have fallen asleep? See, Paul isn't talking here about people that are taking a nap or people that are just lazy and sleeping on the job. See, this word sleep is very interesting because it shows up multiple times in the New Testament. It's actually one of the favorite words that the writers of the New Testament use to describe death for a believer. It's just sleep. Uh, We even see this in John chapter 11, whenever Jesus is talking about, uh, we're, we're in the story of Lazarus. When they're on the road to go see Lazarus, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Now, was Lazarus asleep? No, he had passed away. But this word became common to be used because there's hope of something more after death. There's something more after death. Sleep isn't just, death isn't the end, so therefore it's like a sleep. We don't have to fear that when we die, that that is the end. It's just like falling asleep. So as this week, as I was preparing for this, I was trying to think of a way to help explain what death is like. And and like I said, I I feel completely inadequate here, but this is the best that I could come up with. So as many of you know, I have a son, Dawson, who's five years old. And uh, when he was younger, about two years old, we had a lot of trouble trying to put him to sleep. I don't, anybody else have trouble putting kids to sleep or y'all, y'all pros, y'all got advice? I mean, come talk to me afterwards, please. Uh, but when he was two, we were having trouble. We tried everything. We tried the 
the, the sleepy time drinks. And we tried the, all, all the stuff that we're supposed to do, all the stuff that's in the books to try to help with that sleep cycle. Nothing seemed to work. So one, one day I, 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 was, I was thinking, you know, I was like, well, what's the one thing that puts me to sleep? I was like, boring television puts me to sleep. I could sit in my chair and fall asleep. Uh, so we got this bright idea. Let's just do our, our routine. We'll go and sit. I'll, I'll sit in the recliner. And then what Dawson can do is he can come and sit in my lap. And then I'll, I'll kind of rock him, you know, get that little action going on. And then we'll put on the most boring television show that we can find. And then it'll be, a, it'll be a game then, right? Because then it's like, who falls asleep first? It's maybe me, I don't even know. But we're, we're, we're rocking, we've got, the, we've got the show on and this began to work. And he would fall asleep in my arms. And as soon as he was asleep and I knew that he was asleep, then I would get up out of the recliner and I'd walk him to his bed. I'd put him in his bed, I'd tuck him in. And then I would very quietly, avoiding all the creaks in the carpet. You know what I'm talking about, dads? And then we'd walk out and we'd lock, shut the door and then we would celebrate because he was asleep. But how similar is that experience to what death is like? See, just like Dawson would go throughout the day with all the struggles and, the, and all the things that life would throw at him during the day, so do we. We go through life and we face struggles and, and we see joys and we see all these things that life has for us. And then at some point we come to this, this point where we, we sit down, we start to wind down, and then we relax into the arms of the Father. So we gently fall asleep and then our father picks us up and he carries us to our new room. Where when we wake up in the morning, we weren't where we were when we fell asleep, but we're in this new place where all things are new. See, the writers of the New Testament called death sleep because they knew it wasn't the end. So Paul's not sitting here going like, oh, they're just asleep, get over it. You know, like he, he's really trying to help us understand that there's something beautiful to the hope that we have in Christ because it gives us a new picture of what death is like. Let's keep going. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So notice here that Paul doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't grieve because you have hope. No, he says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. So in that, there's this context that shows us that as Christians, as believers in Christ, we still grieve. We're not exempt from grief. Ours just looks different. We can't believe the lie that grieving is a sin. Grief is not a sin. Christians can be sad. We can weep. Christians can feel pain and loss. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Why would he say that if we're not supposed to? 
In this life, we do experience these things. And why? Because death is ugly. It is. Death is an enemy to be conquered. Death reminds us of our mortality and our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we will all one day experience death for ourselves. Are you all into statistics? Like statistics? Here's one for you. 100% of people die. It's frustrating. It's ugly. Every time we see death, it's just a reminder of our brokenness because it reminds us that this wasn't the way things were supposed to be. When God created everything perfectly in the garden, death wasn't part of the equation. It's a reminder of our sin and our brokenness and the results of those things. Grieving over these things is not a sin, it's, it's biblical. It should make us sad. We should hate living in a world where funeral homes have to exist. We appreciate those people who help, help us through the, those grieving processes and, and they do a great job. But we should hate being in a world where those things have to exist. We should hate living in a world where there's such a thing as a death penalty. Not because we don't understand the consequences of things, but because death just has to exist. These things should grieve us. But we don't grieve like people with no hope. So who are these other people? At this time, the pagan Gentiles had no answer for death. Their answer was basically like, well, you're alive and then you're not. Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? But it was just despair, grim resignation and bleak hopelessness. Death for them was just the end. You lived and then you didn't. Here's some, here's some quotes from some Greek writers of the time. I, I thought these were pretty interesting just to kind of give you a perspective here. This first one is, well, I'm going to try to pronounce their names. I, I'll try to get close here. The first one is from this guy named Theocritus, who said, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Catullus said, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. Well, that's, that's great. That's, that's the message for today, right? And this is my favorite one right here. This was on a Greek tombstone that they found. It says, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. <laughs> this hopelessness hasn't gone away. We, we, we may think like, oh, well, we live in this world today. We've gone beyond that. We've, we understand more about, about what the end, our end of our lives may look like. But really it hasn't. It's just repainted itself, repackaged itself. And now we call it modern secularism. And there's no hope. 
There's people that believe that they're, they're born, they live, and there's really no purpose, there's no meaning. We just live, and then we don't. I do want to note, too, that, that Paul doesn't disagree with this idea of hopelessness. He doesn't go, well, they, they think they're hopeless, but really they're not. No, he tells us that there are people who have no hope. This completely ruins the argument for universalism. Universalism is this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what we believe on earth. It doesn't matter what happens because in the end, we'll just all end up in the good place anyway. That's just not true. Paul says we can grieve like those who have hope or we can grieve like those who are hopeless. So what is our hope? What does Paul say about our hope? He says it in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there is our hope. There it is, right there. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we can have hope. There is joy in our grief for this reason alone, because of the hope found in the gospel. Apart from anything else, it's hopeless. But we can have joy in our grief because of the hope found in the gospel. Because Jesus died and rose again, we can have confidence that we will do the same. Death is not the end. There's a glorious eternity awaiting where tear ducts will be completely useless. There's a glorious eternity awaiting those who are in Christ, where all the pains and the hurts of this world, all the things that we have to watch on the news will no longer exist. And more than that, sin and its fatal consequences will be an ancient relic. It'll be gone. It's death is not the end in Christ. Not only are the dead in Christ present with him now, here's the cool thing, they will also get a front row seat for the greatest comeback story ever. ever. Who, who loves a good comeback story? I think we all do, right? Yeah, so... Not only are they present with the Lord now, but they will be a part of the greatest comeback story ever. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what's he talking about? In the ancient times and ancient civilizations, including the Romans here, they would have this practice where they would send out a welcoming party when the king returned from war. So the king would go out, lead his army, they would have victory, and then they would come back. And then the city would send out this group called a diplomacy where they would meet and greet the king and all the soldiers that were returning. And they would sing songs, and they would play instruments, and, and they would do all kinds of fun things. 
And what Paul is saying here is that just like that, when our king returns, those that have fallen asleep will be on the front row of the welcoming committee. They will be the ones that get to welcome the king. It goes on and says that we, as those who have not fallen asleep, will join them. And we'll be a part of the greatest comeback story ever. So this morning, this is for you. So some of you are probably sitting in here going, that this, is, this is fine, whatever, we're reading the Bible, great. But what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Well, this, this is what we have to do this morning. We have to answer this question. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? And I know, I know what you're thinking. I, I know a lot of younger people in here, I know, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, hey, I've got plenty of time to worry about this question. I've got plenty of life ahead of me. I mean, it's astronomical the amount of money that we spend on trying to keep ourselves young. Like, why do gyms exist? Have you ever tried to figure that out? We pay people so that they can make us work. Like, I don't, I don't and then we pay people to yell at us while we're, acting like we're working. I don't know. Anyways, but we pay all this money so that we can try to keep ourselves long and alive as long as possible. And to some degree, I think eventually we start begin, we, we believe this lie that we keep telling ourselves that we can cheat death. I told you up front that I hadn't experienced much personal loss, but as a student pastor, I can tell you about a few stories that I've been a part of. See, I was at the scene of a crash where parents learned that their 16-year-old girl didn't make it. I've sat in a room where 13 families learned all at once that their loved one had perished in a bus accident. As they were on their way back from a retreat for church. I've gotten a phone call at midnight. Because parents came home and found their 14 year old son dead. We can't afford to ignore this question. Where is your hope? You're not promised tomorrow. Where's your hope? Parents, dads especially, where do your kids find their hope? What hope are you leading them to? Are you teaching them to find hope in a sports scholarship? Are you teaching them to find hope in in a good job and a good life and you're, you're trying to just promote a be a responsible citizen? That's where you find your hope.
Maybe you're nearing retirement. Are you starting to show your kids that the hope is found in a retired life where you just get to have fun and do whatever you want to? So seek after all the money you can now because by the time you're 55, you're gonna wanna step away from this and just live a life for yourself. That's the whole purpose. See, hope isn't found on a ball field. It's not found in a six-figure job. It's not found in hunting and fishing getaways. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Have you found your hope in Jesus who lived the perfect life that you could never live? Have you found your hope in Jesus who died on the cross and took your punishment that you deserved for your sin and he died in your place? Have you found your hope in the King of kings and Lord of lords who rose from the grave conquering death once and for all and gave us this promise of eternal life? Better yet, of all this, it's not something that we have to work to earn because he knew that we could never work and earn it, so he gives it to us freely as a gift. Have you believed in the hope of the death and resurrection of Christ? As believers, we have this other thing we need to deal with. So what do we grieve about? What do we grieve about? If we don't grieve in the way that those that are hopeless grieve, then that must tell us something about what we should grieve about. See, the church should be grieved for those that do not have hope in Christ. That should be the thing that grieves us the most. Do we grieve about the world that is walking around, all around us, every single day that we come face to face with, that's living in this purposelessness, That's living without hope and living without Christ. Do we come face to face with that and do something about it? Going back to that same story of Jesus with Lazarus, he comes to town, Mary and Martha, the sisters meet him and said, Jesus, if you just would have been here, you could have done something about this. And we get this beautiful verse, it's this long, eloquent saying, Jesus wept. Did Jesus weep because of Lazarus, or did he weep because of the hopelessness he saw in Mary and Martha's eyes? He didn't weep for Lazarus because he knew exactly what was gonna take place with Lazarus. He knew that he was gonna go to that tomb and he was gonna call him out and that he was gonna walk out of that tomb. But what brought him to tears was the fact that Mary and Martha stood there and they had no hope. When Jesus is on the road to the cross and he's walking, he's carrying his cross, People are weeping and crying out. And he says, don't weep for me. Why? Because he knew the hope. He knew that he was the hope and he knew that he was going to fulfill the hope. But what does he say? He says, grieve for Jerusalem. Grieve for these people. Why? Because they had rejected him and because they were living without hope. See, the answer to our grief we can look at grief in the face and say, we know what our hope is, but then we look at the world and we can say, you need to know where our hope comes from. I'm 
My prayer is that as a church, as we go forward with our, our vision of 10,000 transforming relationships, as we enter into this idea of reaching out to our community one relationship at a time, at the heart of that would be they need the hope of Christ. They don't just need a handout or a hand up. They need the hope of Christ. This morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, I would love to talk with you about how you can take that next step, how you can believe and receive this hope. After the sermon here, I'll be over in the, across the atrium by the library in the, in the next steps area. I'd love just to talk with you about how you can take that next step with Christ. If you just need prayer for something that you're going through, that you're grieving about, I would love to, to spend some time praying with you as well. Because like I said, we don't, we're not exempt from grief. We walk through these things. But the beauty is we walk through them together as a church, as believers with a hope.